0: All right, good evening. This is American Lit Part 4. So again, this is being done primarily for my American Literature class because we can't be in person to explore um, more fully. So I'm dividing the lectures up and presenting some extra material online and then doing the Zoom classes with my students. So I'm not sure how coherent all this will be for those who aren't in the class. But hopefully, if you find it interesting, that's great. Um, Yeah, So what we've been doing is exploring the sort of amazing number of transitions that are happening in the United States, basically from 1900 until, you know, 1960, this huge passage of immigration and environmental, industrial, economic change. You know, you have the migration from African-Americans from the South into the North. You have the whole transition of the war. You have the Great Depression. So it really is this extraordinary period of change and tension and coming out of that coming out of the war in this case which was you know hugely transformative and important event in american history that sort of thrusts america from an isolationist backwater inward looking country into world dominance which is crazy you know you look at it you know if you looked in the united states in 1930 people would have said oh well this country you know was never going to because they don't, they don't, they're not striving to be part of the world they're sort of striving to be isolated and inward looking um, Ten years later, 15 years later, all of a sudden, you know, bestride the world as a, as a military and political and economic power of the first water. I mean, just sort of uncontested. Soviet Union's there, but, you know, in this bipolar world in which, you know, we're just a central focus. <clears throat> so... That transformation is immense, and a lot of people look back on that era, post-war, up to you know mid '60s or whatever. This is the "quote-unquote" golden age of American history. But what's strange about that concept is that if you actually look back at the period, the literature that comes out of this, the Beats, etc., they present an, a very different sensibility. You know, Ginsberg, of course, the famous Howl poem. Um, if you look that up, you'll see that the opening, you know, I've seen the greatest minds of my generation gone insane, more or less, is how it opens. He has an entire section where he just goes, Moloch, Moloch, the schools are Moloch, the government is Moloch, and Moloch is a Babylonian god of child sacrifice, right? So he's not he's not real excited about the changes that he sees going on around him and the culture that he's experiencing. But you see the same thing, you know, with Kerouac on the road. Um, All over the place in the literature of this time period, you're seeing an expression not of happiness, golden age, but of discontent, um, dissatisfaction, unhappiness. And part of this, not all of this, but part of this comes from the fact that what people are experiencing, all of these transitions, all of these dislocations, all the movement and change and expansion and explosion of American culture and American life that is going on, is not being represented in the popular culture. So the popular culture at this time is dominated by you know TV and film magazines, newspapers are more prominent. But you know when you think about TV and film, they are governed by very strict codes of censorship. Generally self-censorship, uh, industry imposed censorship. but nonetheless, censorship and the, you know the kind of the classic example is the Hayes Code. Um, which governs film, but that in general it was it just clarified what people were doing anyway, even on the radio, but but particularly in film and and in TV, to present a version of the world that had nothing to do with what people were experiencing or many people were experiencing. So I think it's worth looking at the Hayes Code and then thinking about what. People are writing at the time what the literature and the literary figures were writing about versus what the Hayes Code was actually uh, talking about. So the general principles is the actual code. <clears throat> no picture shall be produced, which will lower the moral standards of those who see it. So, so. Notice now that the standard is the the viewer. So of course this makes it very subjective, but also very conservative because some areas of the country will be much more conservative than other areas. <clears throat> Hence, the sympathy of the audience shall never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. So 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 you can so a criminal can never be rewarded. sins can never be shown to be understandable. Wrongdoing must be punished. Um, two correct standards of life, subject only to the requirements of drama, shall be presented. Correct standards of life, right? I just love this idea. You know, like what? What does that mean? But of course, we know what it means, sort of vaguely. Like you can't show people who are doing living life that we, you know. That they're not supposed to doing things that are bad or morally suspect or questionable. Law, natural or human, shall not be ridiculed, nor shall simply be created for its violation. Ah, so all laws, right, have to be presented as um, being reasonable and you cannot ridicule them and you cannot think, uh, try to incite people to violate them. Particular applications. Um, there, these shall never be, uh, crimes against the law shall never be presented in such a way as to throw sympathy with the crime as against the law and justice or inspire others with a desire for imitation. Um, murder, the technique of murder must be presented in a way that will not inspire imitations. Brutal killings are not to be presented in detail. Revenge in modern times shall not be justified. So you could have revenge apparently, um, in, uh, old films because that's maybe historical, but you're not supposed you know, revenge, no, no, no. Mercy killing shall never be made to seem right or permissible. Methods of crime should not be explicitly presented. Theft, robbery, safe cracking, and dynamiting of trains, etc., should not be detailed. Arson must be subject to these same safeguards. The use of firearms should be restricted to essentials. I like that. I don't even, I don't even really know what that means. What is that? it should be uh, uh, <laughs> to the essential use of firearms? Methods of smuggling should not be presented. Illegal drug traffic must never be presented. P- pretty much no illegal drug use. Legal drug traffic must not be portrayed in such a way as to simulate the curiosity concerning the use or traffic in such drugs. Um Drug addiction, the illicit, uh, the use of liquor in American life, when not required by the plot, will not be shown. Uh, drug addiction or the illicit traffic in addiction producing drugs shall not be shown. Um, right, so I mean, there's a whole bunch of rules about that. You know, basically, you just can't. You can hint at it, but you're not supposed to do it. Um, kidnapping is out, Cru- cruelty, brutality, shall not be presented. Sex, the sanctity of the institution of marriage and the home shall be upheld. Picture shall not infer that low forms of sex relationships are, the, are accepted or a common thing. I like that low forms of sex relationships, um, adultery and illicit sex, uh, must not be explicitly treated or justified or presented attractively. So it might be necessary that this exists and is and is hinted at, but again, it can never be seen as permissive or okay or or um, justified. Scenes of passion; these should not be introduced except where necessary for the plot. Again, like the guns, guns and, and and sex apparently can't, except for plot. Excessive and lustful kissing is not allowed. In general, passion should be treated in such a manner as not to stimulate the lower and baser emotions. I love that. Uh, seduction, uh, there shall never be more than suggested, and then only one essential for the plot. Right, um, sex perversion or any interf- in- inference of it is forbidden, of course. So this means um, no homosexuality, of course, because that would be considered a perversion. Um, they did no interracial relationships were allowed. Miscegenation, sex relationships, white and black is totally forbidden. Um, white slavery shall not be treated. I love that distinction that, that yeah, apparently black slavery is fine white slavery. No, no, no. Um, and, and I think this is, this is partly a response to the notion that, um, Right around the turn of the century, there were lots of popular novels, but, you know, sort of your your pulp fiction of the day that featured white slavery as a core element of the plot. Those were sort of your your bestsellers of the day. I don't know. Uh, we, you know I think we've lost that a bit, but at the time, those were your your go-to New York Times bestseller lists, white slavery. Um, prostitution, not to be introduced. No, again, miscegenation, no. Sex perversion, Um Abortion out, uh, no vulgarity, no obscenity, excuse me, or profanity. Um, I mean, dancing, dance, suggesting or representing sexual actions or indecent passion or forbidden dances, which emphasize indecent movements are to be regarded as obscene. Religion, no film or episode may throw ridicule on any religious faith. Ministers of religions and their character as ministers of religion should not be used as comic characters or as villains, right? So you can't you can't uh, mock or throw derision on a, any religion, and you cannot attack the clergy or leaders of any religion. Ceremonies of any different definite religion should be carefully and respectfully handled. Uh, the you know so. Yeah, just incredible. National feelings as a whole sex. The use of the flag shall be consistently reflect, uh, respectful. The history, institutions, prominent people, and citizenry of all nations shall be res- represented fairly. Um, no picture shall be produced that tends to incite bigotry or hatred. Um, yeah. So I, the code, is this is a guideline, and it changed over time. Um, So, you know, all these items weren't fixed for all time. But that gives you a sense of how strongly, how systematically all of the issues that people might be interested in dealing with were being carefully controlled and edited. So you're experiencing as a writer, as, as Allen Ginsberg living in the city or as someone living on the coast or you're experiencing this influx of immigrants or you're an immigrant who is who is influxing and you want to write about it think about it reflect about it and read about it well you go to the movies or you turn on the tv and what do you see none of this right none of this is actually represented so when ginsberg begins writing um he writes again the opening lines i saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness starving hysterical naked dragging themselves through the negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix, angry-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo and the machinery of night, who poverty and tatters and hollowed-eyed and high sat up smoking in the supernatural darkness of cold-water flats floating across the tops of cities contemplating jazz, who bared their brains to heaven under the L and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on tenement roofs illuminated. So let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So there's eight lines of the poem, um, and he's already, you know, so we've got madness, starving, naked, uh, Negro streets, they're angry, fix. so drugs, angel-headed, hipsters, sort of religion, um, ancient heavenly connection, poverty, tatters, hollowed eye, a so high, Um, smoking jazz again, of course, supernatural darkness, cold water flat, so poverty floating across the tops of cities, contemplating jazz, which was still somewhat controversial or starting to become more mainstream at the time, who bared their brains to heaven under the L and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on tenement roofs. So there it is. So you have Mohammedan angels, you can't do that. It's a bad representation of religion. And so in roughly eight lines of the beginning of this very long poem, not that long actually, but longish poem, Um, He's violated, every line violates several of the Hayes Codes. This is not a mistake. It's not an accident. It's it's what he was feeling. He was looking out at the world and saying, here's what I'm seeing, and this is not what's being reflected back to me in my culture. It's very disorienting. Uh, It was disorienting for Ginsburg, disorienting for a lot of the writers. Now, how you responded to this varied, and 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 your take on it. So many of the Beats, you know, again Kerouac and Cassidy head out, right? Let's, let's go out in America. Let's discover America. Let's go see what's actually going on out there. This desire for motion and experimentation. But other writers, like I say, a Flannery O'Connor, um, classic example, Faulkner, of course, um, are looking at these changes, and they are horrified because they're trying to maintain aspects of society that they think are good that are changing. So for uh, with Connor in, in Flannery O'Connor's case, of course she's very religiously conservative and so she thought, "Oh, we're losing these religious core values. I don't see them reflected in my culture." And so all of these transitions are affecting the authors, but they're not responding to them in the same way because you know O'Connor, Flannery O'Connor is much more like an Elliot figure. She's 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 looking back. She wants to maintain. She she feels loss. As, you know she she feels the wasteland that Elliot writes about and is concerned about it and 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 wants to maintain something that that she feels is that is not valued in culture or society anymore. And so her works come across as very gothic and extreme. Though that her works could not be presented by the Hays Code, you couldn't make movies or films of most of her story. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I'm, trying, I'm running. I just hadn't just never occurred to me before, but I don't think you could make films of any of her novels or short stories um, because, uh, yeah, I think they I, it, it, off the top of my head, I think they all violate the Hays Code. I mean, they're just really uh, the, these are not the kinds of. This is exactly what the Hays Code was was trying to to not have represented. So even though, for in Connors' case, Flannery O'Connor's case, a conservative writer, as in essence, if, if you can think of her that way, um, you know, she wasn't satisfied with what she was seeing either. And then you have someone like Ginsburg, you know, homosexual, drug user, sort of trying to break out of those old mor- forms. He's not happy either. And so you know, it's sort of this. Everyone is feeling these tensions. Everybody's feeling the transitions um, in the second section of. Uh, ginsburg's how you get the whole moloch section as i mentioned moloch solitude filth ugliness ash cans unattainable dollars children screaming under the stairways boys sobbing in the armies old men weeping in the parks moloch moloch a nightmare of moloch moloch the loveless mental moloch moloch our heavy judger of men i mean wow you know he does not like what he sees and he's resp- responding and reacting to it incredibly v- violently because he feels like it's in a violent assault. Uh, again, and, and same thing again, I'm just sort of making the contrast with Flannery O'Connor because their persons and outlooks and stories are so different, but they're responding to the same stimulus in different ways because they're different writers. Faulkner, for his, there's a famous section, uh, The Bear, that's often exerted from a Faulkner novel that explores these themes. The bear is sort of a Moby Dick, kind of the great white whale. It's the great bear that they're out going to hunt and kill. But it's also a vision of the past. This is basically, it's the last bear that's out there. The, the, the city is, being, is growing and intruding, and people don't live this way anymore, and the natural world is fading. And so this, this, this element of the past is, is going away. And Faulkner sees it going away, and he's not sure how to respond. Um, but he, he knows this is happening. Technology is coming and disor- disrupting these elements. Again, you take a different beat poet. I mean, it's always, you know, is Gary Snyder a beat poet? I would think, sure, why not? Um, I never know what these categories. Anyway, but, you know, his response is to say, hey, let's go back to nature. Let's, let's go back to um, the wild. Let's go back to the forests and the land. And he's an early sort of thinker of these movements to um, re-embrace with nature as this guide to living because what he sees around him is so unsatisfactory. But part, again, part of this tension comes from, it's one thing to live in a time when you feel lots of tension and crisis and problems. And if you turn on the news or watch a movie, you see these ideas explored and reflected back to you. It's an entirely different notion to live at a time where you feel these things and you look at the media and the news and the TV and you don't see any of it reflected back to you, right? It's like it's from a different planet. Think of how incredibly alienating this would be. Um, and this is what many of these people responded to, both, both literally, I mean, they actually just said, look, I feel you know incredibly alienated. Um, but many of them, it's perfectly clear in their writing and their memoirs and their biographies that this is, this is what was driving them or part of what was driving them, of course, not all of it. So there's this fundamental disjuncture between the the popular presented culture and the culture as experienced by the writers uh, of the time. And so that tension is just added on top of all of the complexities and transitions that we've been talking about. Another aspect of this is that high culture had a completely different standard. So at the same time that you have all of these crazy movie codes going on, you have a writer like Tennessee Williams, who is on one of the great creative roles of all time, um, you know, Glass Menagerie, which is end of the war era, like 1944, 1945. A very serious reflection on the pre war, going into the war world. I mean, it's f- fundamental, pr- profound, amazing. Just the opening of that is is an extraordinary play. I'm trying to remember the opening lines, but. He says in the, the, the the narrator the says something like the middle class is having its hand held down on the burning braille of a dying economy or something something like that. I should look it up. It's a beautiful line, but it's just like, you know, they don't want to look at it, but they're being forced to look at it. Um, and then you have uh, a streetcar named Desire, you know, meditating on sexual issues, underage. I mean, just that entirely, the incredibly you know, sort of torrid uh, play and then cat on a hot tin roof with explicit presentation of homosexuality, you know, n- 1955 sweet bird of youth um, all night of the, right. So he was just on this, just one an incredible success after another, none of which could be presented in film, right. You couldn't present this in film. So if you're an elite city dwelling uh, educated member of society, you could go see a Tennessee William play And go, oh, yeah, here is some, okay, here it is. But outside of that, if you weren't a member of that, you couldn't. And if you did, even if you did go and you saw Tennessee Williams play and you were like, yeah, there it is. This resonates with me. I mean, there's a reason they were so successful because they resonated with people. And then you left and you're like, well, why isn't the rest of culture talking about this? And other writers, I mean, Henry Miller, remember, is still banned. You still couldn't basically get a lot of French novels, contemporary French novels were banned. You know, Henry Miller, you still can't get his novels. It's going to be until the, what, 60, 64, 65, right in there, that you're they're readily available. So even the, the literate elites, are, if you can read French, you can get a lot of these works coming over because, you know, American soldiers went over and started to encounter this literature like, hey— you know, look, there's, there's literature over here that's interesting and, and that, that we find fascinating that's actually, you can't distribute in the United States. So it's not around, it's not available. And so you have this, again, this weird disjuncture between uh, elite, educated, Eurocentric, uh, um, if you had several languages... Then what you could access, you could go to a Tennessee Williams play, you could read a Henry Miller novel, and you could be like, woo, I live in a different world than essentially what you see in the movies on TV, what's legal to distribute in the United States. Now, if you're in New York or maybe San Francisco, some of these works are also around and there's underground theaters and there's, you know, European theaters, and so you could get access to it here and there in little pieces, but by and large, it was sort of a cultural, popular cultural wasteland that was being held up as this is reality. And then people were reflecting on what they were actually experiencing and going, this doesn't seem to have anything to do with how I'm feeling about the world. And so one of the things that throws the beats forward is that sort of accelerator, that that incredible tension that they feel on the problems that they see and the lack of expression of those problems. And so... All, many different writers coming from different backgrounds with different histories are responding to the the dynamic of massive cultural upheaval, which is married to a cultural pre, a, a cultural presentation of itself that is sort of is fantastical, and so when I think when people think back on the golden age of the fifties and early sixties. They don't remember the actual history, and they certainly aren't reading the literature of the time because you wouldn't think of Tennessee Williams as presenting some sort of reflection on a utopic society, or the Beats, or Ginsburg um, or Flannery O'Connor, or you know, you know, Faulkner, whoever you want to pick. Is, is that's what they're doing? You know, that's not what they seem to be writing about, or reflecting on, or obsessing about. Um, so it seems more like people are remembering the vision of America as America presented to itself, which was at the time actually just uh, a mythical. I mean, it wasn't true then, not expressed by the people who lived through the time. And so it's like a, a bizarre self-expression. Uh, so the, 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 a bizarre expression of the self as it wanted to be seen is being remembered as how it was. And then the literary expression that grows out of it seems so completely perverse and at odds with society. But I think that's the wrong reading of it. It wasn't at odds with society, it was a much better reflection of what society was going through. And the popular culture just had nothing to, just was functionally incapable of, did not want to, was not allowed to reflect on that and that's why when you get a film like The Graduate which is one of the first when they finally completely gave up on the Hays Code The Graduate is one of the first film that comes out in the you know totally free post-Hays era and it has every it violates just basically everything religion is made fun of uh adultery is shown to be okay Um, you know, (laughs) whatever it is, whatever you make out in the Hays Code is practically a violation of it. It was an amazing film in many ways, but one of it is kind of an almost alphabetical move through all the moral uh, guidelines that you're you're not supposed to do. And they did them uh, all in one film, or did many of them in one film. So yeah, a fascinating uh, break with that tradition. But why was it such a hit? Part of it was such a hit because people are like, oh, here it is. This is the complexity of the real world all of a sudden being reflected back at me. Now I'm beginning to see it. Now I understand it. Now now this seems more like my experience. And this is just a beginning, of course, not an end of the process. So as we think about all these transitions and all the material that we've been reading and as we move into reading Ginsberg and Kerouac and Snyder, and these authors, it's important to keep in mind that the history and cultural history of America, as often presented to us, is very much at odds with what was being experienced and being written about by people like Miller and Williams and Ginsburg and O'Connor and Faulkner in, in their material. It's just very much different. And that's why when you read Mumbo Jumbo and Ishmael Reed, part of what he's doing, and there he's doing many things. He's working. I mean, if you haven't read Mumbo Jumbo, by the way, uh, if, everyone in my class has, of course. But if you're out there listening and you haven't, definitely read Mumbo Jumbo. I mean, he's Reed is really working all the stops. It's, it's it's a it's a tour de force, brilliant, brilliant tour de force, and and I think funny and enjoyable uh, to boot. But um, these authors are struggling with that incredible dynamic tension of of feeling like oh I I feel something that's going on. I feel these changes, which are real and are happening and are infecting everybody I know. And then I turn on the TV or I go to a movie or I pick up a magazine or I go to the bookstore and wow, it's not there. It's, it's like I'm getting stuff beamed in from a different world, from a different planet even, from a, from, from a place that never was. And, and that really does drive someone like Ginsburg uh, a bit mad and gives him that incredible drive and spark and sort of, um, you know, rage, that howl as it is right there in the title. So part four, thank you.